Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be here. Um, a little bit, I should say, a lot fun to see some old faces. A few of us have uh, a few more gray hairs than we used to from the last time I was here. Um, the kids are a lot bigger than they used to be. Um, and it's been good to already have some conversation with a handful of you guys. So thank you, Tim, for the opportunity to be here this morning and to share from God's Word. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, I'll have you turn in your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Um, but before uh, we start to dig into the Word there, um, as Tim mentioned, I am uh, serving now as the Executive Director of uh, Star of Hope Ministries in Patterson. Um, I've been involved in Calvary Chapel for a number of years, uh, having, having pastored at Calvary Chapel in Patterson for about eight years and, and some history here, obviously, at, at CCNJ. And, and about 10 years ago, I think it was, uh, being ordained along with Kurt Schwarz here, right in this room. And um, so this is, a, again, it's, it's a blessing to be here with you all uh, this morning. For those of you that may not be as familiar with some of the work that Starve Hope Ministries does... Um, well, who here, real quick, show, show me uh, hands, who here has heard of Star of Hope before, right? That's a, a good chunk of you, right? And most of you, I think, like Tim mentioned, when you think of Star of Hope, uh, most people want to ask, what does Star of Hope do? The number one answer I get is, oh, you're the box of love people, right? Yes, we are the Box of Love people. It's our biggest initiative every year, our Thanksgiving Box of Love initiative. Um, but who are we really? What do we do? That's one thing of many that we do throughout the year. Um, Star of Hope has been serving uh, in the city of Patterson for 109 years. I have not been there that long. And I'm going to continue to tell that joke until nobody laughs. But... Uh, um, we're in the midst of that box of love season now. Um, our goal is the week before Thanksgiving to be able to distribute 2,500 boxes of food, 1,500 turkeys uh, for the communities that we serve. Um, and it's, it's our largest resource initiative of the, of the year. It's, uh, it's over, over $150,000 worth of resources that we're able to bring out into the community to serve families in need. But one of the key elements of how we do this is uh, we don't actually give boxes of food to individuals. People are like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You don't give them to... No, we actually give them to pastors and leaders in the community so they can serve people in their neighborhoods, which is a unique difference because ultimately we realize it's not about the food, right? It's about a relationship. And the box of food and the turkey is a tool for building a relationship on this level so ultimately we can point people to a relationship on this level. And that's part of the power behind what we do. So we have a network of about 75 churches and organizations that we partner with and we distribute to them about a week before Thanksgiving. They use this to serve their neighbors, pastors and leaders going out or sometimes even serving families in need in their church uh, fellowship. And, uh, and, and it really, uh, it, it provides this great opportunity for deepening relationships around the city. We could, if we wanted to, open our doors on Broadway and Patterson and say, free food, free boxes, free turkeys. And we'd probably have a line from Patterson to Passaic, right, of people looking for free stuff. But the problem is we don't have the capacity to 
develop a deeper relationship with all 2,500 of those families. But the church, this is the beauty of God's design, right? God knew what he was doing when he, when he his bride, right? When he strategically planted us in neighborhoods all around the world so that we can be a light and we can be that redeeming force in our neighborhoods. So that's, part, that's a big part of what we do, again, with resources. But even beyond that, uh, we do some leadership development training. We have a ministry and theology training program that we offer for pastors and leaders. Uh, uh, we have... Uh, na- uh, what we call community development training. Uh, One of them is called Jobs for Life, where we're training leaders and we're training people at the grassroots level to be ready for the workforce. We just this year launched an entrepreneurship training program. Uh, uh, Next year, we want to launch a financial literacy program. All of these are programs that are biblically based because ultimately we know it's not just about filling out a resume or a job application and interview skills, right? We want people to understand that they were created by God for work, right? Same thing with entrepreneurship, having the right God-given mindsets about how to start and launch and run your business, right? We have to have the right God-given mindset about how we handle our finances, um, because we can, all of us, right, whether you have a lot of finances or a little finances, we can all get crazy with how we think about our money. And so we're approaching all of these things from a biblical standpoint to help the community with community development, economic development initiatives. But I'll say this, and then we'll start to dig in in a second. I was having coffee with a pastor friend a while back, and he asked me and he said, What's, what really gets you excited about what you're doing at Star of Hope? What really, what get, and if you guys, if you guys want to talk to me afterwards, I, I have a table down in the fellowship hall, love to talk with you. You'll see, I can get excited about any one of those things. I get, I, I, through the roof, I could talk forever. I might talk your ear off, but Tim told me I only have until 1015, so I got to get going here. But what really gets you excited about what you're doing at Star of Hope? And I, I started to really, uh, think about it and I said, you know what? It's the idea of getting pastors and leaders and the church to be working together in community and building unity. Because, you see, we start out with the church. We believe that the church is the answer for the community. I think I had some slides about this. I don't know if they'll uh, have them up there. But it's this idea, one of our core values of our, our organization is we believe in the local church. Our core value statement says... We support the local church, believing it to be God's chosen agent to nurture people and to transform society. Did you know that if the Lord should tarry in 500 years, there may not be such a thing as a nonprofit organization, right? The answer for our communities is not the nonprofit. That's a largely Western, modern structure that we've developed God's answer for all eternity is his bride, the church. And so we want to build up and help to establish the church. But we get into what gets me most excited is, like I said, seeing churches working together, partnering together, building community, functioning as a healthy body the way God has designed us to work. And this gets us to core value number two, which is this idea of partnership, 
bringing partnership to the community. And this statement says, we promote positive partnerships among greater Patterson's churches, organizations, pastors, and community leaders. Core value number three is similar to it. And this is the idea of unity. We're going to talk about this today. We seek the unity that God desires in the body of Christ. This is what we're talking about here in Philippians chapter 2. And I think there are some important lessons for us here this morning. When you think of the CCNJ family, the church family here, but also when you think of the larger body of Christ, the big picture, right? The family of God, the big C church, right? Not just the church of Patterson or Passaic or Passaic County, the church of New Jersey, right? The church of Jesus Christ around the world. So I want to ask you guys, as we start to dig into this passage, look at this passage with two sets of eyes. One set of eyes might be individually looking inside, looking inward at your church family here. But I want to try to give you another set of eyes looking beyond that and seeing the big picture of what God is trying to do through his church around the world and what God's heart is for his people, for his bride. So I'm going to read... Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, if you guys want to follow along with me, and then I'll pray, and then we can start to dig in. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind." Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these truths found in your word. God, we thank you for uh, uh, your Holy Spirit working through your word in our lives, Lord. And I pray now that our hearts would be open to what you want to teach us this morning. Quicken our hearts, Lord, to be able to receive from your Holy Spirit. Meet each one of us right where we're at. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you guys are familiar with the book of Philippians... Paul finished up chapter 1 of Philippians, really speaking to the church in Philippi about how to deal with difficulties and challenges that come from outside sources, right? Things from the outside causing trouble, right? Paul said some hard things. Verse 29, he said, 
This is not a, a favorite verse to preach on, but he said, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Right? Hard things. This could be a sermon in and of itself. But now here Paul starts changing things in, in chapter 2 where he's, he's talking about standing strong for the Lord, not just against external conflicts, but uh, uh, about uh, the internal conflicts that might happen in the body of Christ. And Paul's appeal to them, it's a powerful appeal. It's an appeal towards unity. And not just unity, not just saying, okay, let's be unified. He actually tells them the way to get there. How to get towards unity. And I title this sermon that I'm about to offer to you guys, Unity Through Humility. And just so you don't think I'm really good at coming up with sermon titles, if you guys have a New King James Bible, it's actually at the chap- top of chapter 2. It says, Unity Through Humility. And it starts out in verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. I love this because Paul is he's kind of speaking rhetorically to them. He's asking them these four questions and making the assumption that they know the answers to them. That they, they don't even really have to say it. They don't even have to respond. If there is any consolation in Christ, Paul says this assuming that as followers of Jesus Christ, they know something of this, right? They know that this exists. In 2 Thessalonians, he says that God loves us and has given us an everlasting consolation. So of course for them, there's a consolation in Christ. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, he says, The Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, if I may use the figure, the Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine. And that's true. We ought to know that if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus. There is great consolation in Jesus Christ. He says, if there is any comfort of love, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that God is the God of all comfort. There's no way that He can't comfort us, right? No circumstance beyond His comfort. Maybe somebody needs to hear that here this morning. I don't know. That God is the God of all comfort. That word in the original language is this word paraclesis. And, and this idea of comfort in the New Testament and that word is, is this, it's more than just like a soothing kind of sympathy. This is actually the, the, the Latin word is the word fortis, where we get the word fortify. And that idea of comfort is this, this thing that strengthens us, that builds us up, that, 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 that allows us to be strong. The love of God, right? If there is any comfort of love, the love of God makes us stronger, right? This is assumed for us as followers of Jesus Christ. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, 
I love the fellowship time that we have in the middle of the service, right? And after the service. It's this idea of, of uh, koinonia, right? That coming together, the sharing of things in common. And, and we share this life in the Spirit of God that we never knew before we came to Christ. Of course there's a fellowship of the Spirit. And he says this final question, if there's any affection and mercy... He assumes, again, that every Christian knows something of the affection of God and the mercy of God. And Paul, he mentions these things in such a way, in such a manner, that suggests to us that these should be obvious to the Christian. They should be part of the Christian's experience. To make his point, one Bible teacher says it this way. He says, Paul could have just as easily said, if water is wet and if rocks are hard, right? This should be obvious for us as Christians. The consolation of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy. Because now Paul says, therefore, fulfill my joy. In verse 2, right? Fulfill my joy. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul says to them, if these things are true, and we know that they are, now here's the challenge for us. And he gives this kind of unity, this really great description of unity. So so really point number one from verse one is there is this foundation of unity. These things that we know about God and about his love for us and his affection and the consolation of Christ. And now we see a description of unity in verse two where he says, like-minded, the same love of one accord, of one mind. If you guys read the book of Acts, several times throughout the the book of Acts, there's these passages where it gives an update. It gives like a a status update on, on the state of the church. And it says things like, they were all in one accord. They had all things in common. They had one mind. None of them was lacking anything. There's these amazing statements about the church. And there was this picture that they knew that they were in this all together, right? This is the kind of unity that Paul writes about. This is the kind of unity that I believe Jesus desires for us as his people. This is the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for for us. If you're familiar with John chapter 17... Jesus' final prayer before going to the cross. He spent some time and he prayed for himself and then he prayed for his disciples. And then it says that he prayed for all the believers that would come after them. That means you and me, right? Jesus actually prayed for us. That's pretty cool. And his prayer for them was not that we would be wealthy, Right? Not that we would be rich and famous. His prayer was that they would be one as I and the Father are one. Right? As closely knit together as this idea of the Holy Trinity is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's the kind of oneness that Jesus prayed for for us as his followers. One of the things that excites me most about my role at Star of Hope is to be a part of a, a team of leaders from around the city working together 
leading a movement to build this kind of John chapter 17 unity. And we do this through things like monthly prayer gatherings. We lead and organize our, uh, the National Day of Prayer uh, at City Hall every May. Uh, uh, we have, have helped to facilitate prayer summit retreats. Right now in the, I'm in the midst of, a, of an initiative called Serve Our Schools. And it's the churches of the city coming together to say, hey, we want to help solve a problem for the school district. The superintendent of schools uh, came to, I had a conversation with her. I said, hey, is there a way we can serve you? What do we need? And she said, I need toiletries. And her goal is to set up a toiletries closet in 33 school school locations, uh, serving every every student from sixth grade all the way up to twelfth grade, it represents about eleven thousand five hundred students because she 's seen that there 's bullying that happens when kids don 't have access to toiletries there 's absenteeism when kids don 't have access to the resources that they need, and she knows that she can 't the, the teachers can 't teach students if they're absent from school and they want to provide this they want to make it as as regular in the schools as is the nurse's office right where kids can help and get the resources that they need along the way and god is doing amazing things i just on friday um so we've had the churches coming together and basically bringing our five loaves and fishes to the lord and saying okay lord here's the little bit we can gather just on friday we received a a donation of over twenty eight thousand items from a a, a company you may have heard of colgate right um uh, provided taking care of all the oral care needs uh, and some body wash and things like that. Um, we're working on another donation from a, an international uh, organization. They want to provide about 33,000 more items. Uh, they, they provide uh, uh, toiletries for hotels and cruise ships. So some of them are smaller, as you can imagine, right? Um, but it's a lot of items, and God is basically multiplying the five loaves and fishes that we brought. But ultimately, this is part of the commanded blessing of God when we dwell together in unity. Did you? Know, I say that, that phrase very, very intentionally. Did you know that? Psalm 133, sometimes we quote verse 1, which says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. If you read on, it actually says that there is this commanded blessing from God. Like God can't not unleash His anointing on His church when we are thinking and living and operating as one. And that's what we're starting to experience as we come together in unity. But here's the thing. It's, a, it's an important challenge. I will say this, it is a difficult challenge, but I know how much it pleases our Father in heaven. I know how much. Some of you are fathers here, maybe, and you know as fathers, when you come into the home and your kids are getting along, right? It might not happen that often, but I don't know. When your kids are getting along, they're playing together, they're smiling, they're hanging out together, they're enjoying each other, they have the same mind. There is such a joy that comes from that. And I believe from the bottom of my heart that that's the same way that God feels when he looks down on his people and he sees us as one. The way that Jesus prayed that we would be one. And I think this is Paul's appeal to the church. It was important to Paul. It was important to Jesus. You might say, okay, Pastor Matt, I get what you're saying. I get your point. Let's go get coffee now. Hold on a second. Verse 3, 
How do we get there? How do we begin to move forward towards that kind of unity? Verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is now the prescription of humility. I never get my sermon points to be alliterated like this. So just, you know, nod your heads and be like, that's pretty cool, right? Never have. This is the only time I've ever preached where it's been alliterated like that. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. This is the idea of us wanting to make ourselves great. Let me tell you guys something. The spiritual life, the Christian life, it is not a competition, guys. Just so you know that, right? But often... We as Christians, we neglect this. We, we want to make ourselves look great. We want to make ourselves look important. We want to get bigger and better spiritually than the person next to us, right? I, I often get to preach in front of a lot of churches around North Jersey. And probably about half the time when I show up, pastors will apologize to me for the number of people in the pews. <laughs> Tim, you know this. I've preached, I've, I've said this before. If you can preach to three people, you can preach to 3,000 people, right? And so it's not about the numbers, right? There's no need to apologize. But for some reason, we have this thing in our nature that wants to make ourselves look great. This is this idea of selfish ambition. Now, Paul did find it important to say selfish ambition because ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Right? But when it's selfish ambition, that's a different story. Right? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. This is a wrong motivation for serving God if we have that selfish ambition. But instead, in lowliness of mind, think of others better than yourselves. Let nothing be done through conceit, he says. So if if selfish ambition is wanting to make ourselves look great, this idea of conceit is we already think we are great. You understand the difference there? This is an excessively favorable opinion of ourselves, our own ability, our importance, all of these things. When we do things feeling like we are so important or we're so gifted or so talented... We're outside of what God really has for us, how he wants us to operate. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He made this, I believe, what's almost a prophetic statement for us. He said, we believe that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And I think this is true, right? Our pride afflicts all of us. Not just the rich and famous and the good-looking. It's pride that causes us to feel hurt when somebody snubs us or somebody takes credit for something that we've done or they ignore us. Pride is behind the envy that we feel towards people who are more successful than we are. 
And these first two things, this idea of, of selfish ambition and conceit, they deal with our motivation, our selfish motivation, our selfish pride, because we are so quick to play the comparison game. It's ultimately all thinking about ourselves. That's what it is. It's selfish. It's our pride. And the antidote for selfishness and pride, he says at the end of verse 4 there, or in, in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He talks about at the end of verse 3, in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than himself. The third part of this equation here is completely contradictory to the ways of this world. Did you know that? Chuck Smith puts it this way where he says, you want to be great in God's kingdom? Learn to be the servant. Don't just look at your own needs, but look at the needs of others around you. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes unity when he says, I'm sorry, humility, when he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Did you know that it's actually a violation of what God says about you if you think too little of yourself as well? Because sometimes we walk around and we think humility is, oh, woe is me. I'm the worst. Right? That's actually a violation of what God says. God tells us that we are his children created with a purpose. And that he has gifted us with unique things. And if we walk around in denial of that, we are in denial of what God says about us. So I like to define uni- or humility, excuse me, I like to define humility as knowing what is true. No more, no less. This helps me even reconcile in the Old Testament. You know what it says? First five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. You know what it says in those books? Moses was the most humble man alive. How can he say that? I'm the most humble. Did you guys know I'm the most humble man alive, right? Unless it's true, right? He's not going to say, oh, I'm... uh, I'm less than what God has created me to be. No. So there's some truth to what he's saying, and that's okay to say that. I joke with people all the time. I'm a basketball player. I love to play basketball. And I know, I don't know where Sal's sitting back here. He's going to laugh when I say this. But I know when I walk into a gym, I can shoot a basketball better than most people that I come in contact with. Not as much now because I'm getting older And usually once I get winded, it all goes out the window. But I'm a good shooter. When I was in my prime, I was one of the better shooters around. If I were to walk around and say, I'm terrible at basketball, it's not true. It's false humility, right? So we need to know what is true and what God says about us. And here we are, verse 3 and 4. Look at your motives, right? Don't do things out of selfish ambition or conceit. Consider others better than yourself. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We see this humility there is the prescription. Now we see what does it look like? A depiction of humility. Verse 5, it says, 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." That statement there that he, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is a clear statement that Jesus is God, right? He didn't have to try to strive for it or reach for it or attain for it. He didn't cling to it. He didn't have to hold on to it with, for dear life. Because he knew it was who he was. He knew what was true. One of the things I like to say about humility is that humility does not need to defend itself. Sometimes when when somebody comes against us and our pride is affronted, we feel like we got to defend ourselves. we got to stand up for ourselves. How did that play out with Jesus? In this picture we see here where he went to the cross. Jesus knew the truth about who he was so well that he came to earth and made himself absolutely nothing, even to the point of death on a cross. And I have to imagine that as Jesus is getting beaten and whipped and the crown of thorns on his head, he, what Paul is telling us here is that he knew so well none of that can change who he is. Nothing can change that. Even the point of death. How do you like that? The death cannot even change who God says says we are. And that's the kind of humility that Jesus was coming from. He had that right mindset where even the point of death. Charles Spurgeon says this, I love it, where where, uh, he says, The lower that Jesus stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. He says, blessed be his name because he stoops and he stoops and he stoops. And then when he reaches our level, he stoops even further. And he stoops lower and deeper yet. One Bible teacher says that this is like coming down to the bottom rung of the ladder from the throne of God. And I believe Jesus, according to this passage, knew who he was and knew that none of those things were going to change him. This is why the Apostle Paul was able to say with all of these crazy crazy things going on in his life with persecution and stoning and thrown in prison and all these things, yet none of these things move me. This is how we can stand firm together, knowing who God has called us to be in humility. Here's the thing. This is the most beautiful thing about it. Verse 9 It tells us what happens with Jesus after that. Sometimes we forget this part. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see, first we see Jesus humbled, right? 
We see the humble example, the depiction of Jesus. Now we see Christ exalted. God's economy is so backwards from the way we operate here in this world. We think that if we want to be exalted, what do we have to do? We've got to build ourselves up. We've got to put ourselves out there. We've got to get ourselves noticed. Be in the limelight. If you don't believe me, understand this. Our culture actually invented something called a selfie. Right? That's how we operate in this world. Not God's economy. The kingdom economy of God says this. James chapter 4. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus himself said, whoever humbles himself like a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. First Peter, Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And here in Philippians 2, we actually see God remaining true to that promise. Through Jesus Christ, right? We see what happens to the perfectly humbled Jesus where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. That this is the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ. Let me close this out by drawing your attention to verse 5. Because here's the challenge for us. Verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind. This shows us that this is something that we actually have to choose to do. We have to say, let it be so. And if you're sitting here today, and you consider yourself a Christian, you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I'm identifying myself with him and with his church as part of his bride, the church. Then understand, according to this passage, what does it mean for us? Remember, I asked you to look at this passage with two sets of eyes, right? What does it mean for CCNJ as a church family? And I use that word intentionally because we're, we're designed and intended as the church to be a family. A family of families. What does it mean for us as the body of Christ as a whole around the world? I think part of it, what it means is we need to all get on the same page. One of the things I'm most passionate about in my work is not just unity where it's like, oh, we all did something together right? Oh, great. We did some toiletries. We did some prayer together, all that kind of stuff. But when we actually start to see where we have the unified mind of Christ together, loving each other uh, uh, the same way that, that, that God desires for us, the same way I as a father desire to see my, Christ, my, my, my children loving each other, This is a beautiful thing. This is a deeper level of unity than I think most of us have experienced in our life. Jesus' heart's cry, guys, was to see his disciples living as one in complete unity. He prayed that for us. 
I believe Paul's argument for us in this passage today is we need to follow the example of our Lord. An example of humility. Unfortunately, what does this mean for us individually? It means we have to die to ourselves. We need to die to ourselves daily. I'll close with this verse from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Guys, it's this idea of this willingness for us to set aside who we are, what we are, to become a servant to others. To make ourselves of no reputation, not esteeming ourselves more highly than we ought to. Just considering ourselves privileged to be followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your example of humility, Lord. Lord, I pray that your church would be a church that is unified, that is one as you prayed, Lord, for us to be one. Help us to be striving and moving towards that oneness, Lord. Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit now, Lord, that if there's, if there's any, any pride that afflicts us in our hearts right now, Lord, that you would wipe it away in the name of Jesus. Lord, bless us throughout this week. Help, a, help this church family to just come together with just a great report next week of all the things that you're, you're doing in and through them. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.